Guys, welcome back to Talking with TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Episode 39, we've got Joe Williams in the house. Joe is just an incredible story from addiction to triumph, adversity. He's played professional sports at the highest level in the NRL for the likes of South Sydney Rabbitohs, Canterbury Bulldogs, and the Penrith Panthers. To dropping out of that and going to challenge himself in boxing. He's had huge issues with mental health. He's he's bipolar, so it was quite a, a big deal for Joe to deal with everything. Just surrounding, he's he's a father. He's got five children as well. He's he's from the country. There's just he's just got an amazing story, Joe, and I really love what he's doing right now with his keynote speaking. Just talking about you know the his own challenges. You know that that vulnerability. It's just an incredible story, which I think, especially now in today's day and age, where mental mental health is just such a huge issue in our society at the moment. For him to be going all around the world, he goes to America, all around Australia, just really promoting and just telling his story so people can see that it is okay for them to speak out as well. So if you haven't yet, please connect with Joe. He's online at www.joewilliams.com.au. Facebook, follow his posts. He's at the enemy within Joe Williams. And Twitter, he's at joewilliams underscore two, which is also his Instagram handle. Before we go, Joe on the show, just a big shout out to everyone tuning in and leaving me five-star reviews on iTunes. I really appreciate that. It really helps me grow in the rankings, get be seen by more people. So if you haven't yet, please log on to your, your podcast app, search Talking With TK, and please, under the review section, leave me a five-star review. Had a great week last week with some of the guests that came on, former NRL player Sioni Falmawina telling us about his transition in after footy and also all the great work he's doing now with Athlete Empire, really mentoring some of the best players in the NRL. The other show we had on, we had Andrew Naboot, Sharks. He's from the Newcastle Jets. Sharks coach Shane Flanagan and also UFC fighter Daniel Kelly. So if you haven't checked those episodes out, please go back. We've got a whole back, back catalogue of episodes. We're up to, like I said, we're up to episode 39. So we're smashing it through, doing a couple of weeks. So please... If you have any feedback on the show, send them through Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com or please connect with me online. I'm at TalkingWithTK on Twitter or on Facebook or Tristan Nell on my Instagram. All right, guys, I'm really excited to bring this one to you and I introduce Joe Williams. All right, guys, my special guest is Joe Williams. Joe is a former NRL player who's played at South Sydney, Penrith, and Canterbury. He's also a former professional boxer. Today, he's an international keynote speaker and the author to be the soon-released Defying the Enemy Within. I welcome Joe Williams. It's uh, it's good to be here. It's it's actually my first time in, in a live, I guess, podcast. Uh, you know, you sit and you have conversations, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm a keynote speaker, um, so I, I speak every day of the week, but to sit and have the conversation, I guess, and it be, be recorded, to, first for me. So that's awesome, man. It's like, to be part of. It's, you know, I've known about you for a while, and I told you that back in the day, I rushed you a couple of times in the flag, so it's great to actually connect now as adults and be able to share some great conversation, man. So thank it's, you for coming in. We all take our different turns in, in life, and we all end up in, in the places where we're supposed to end up, and yeah. it's brought us to here today. Absolutely. Man, I really want to know about the book straight up, because I know you've put a lot of work and a lot of time into this. So even, I know that the words, the enemy within, that's your Facebook 
profile and obviously those words really resonate with you. So tell us about the book and how you named it and all the behind the scenes stuff. I'm really interested. No, it was, it came about, I've wanted to write a book forever. Yeah. Um, before I opened up about, you know, my illness, whether it be writing stories, I've always had a passion for writing. Yeah. And it just made sense, you know, I, I transitioned into this public speaking arena where I was, I was traveling right, right across the United States as a speaker. And, and the guy who I, who I was speaking with, Kevin Hines in America, he has his book and, and you notice everywhere you go in conferences and so forth, people mm-hmm. have books that they sell, right? Yeah. Um, and so many people were saying to me, Joe, you, you, your story is so interesting. Where's your book? And I was like, well, I don't really have one. And that's how it came about. And I went, you know, I'd been jotting down things over the past sort of two or three years. Um, and as I said, I've always been a writer as such. I always loved English at school, always yeah. loved writing. So um, a couple of years ago, I, I, I penned, it was about, I started and it ended up being about nine or 10,000 words. Um, you know, funny that I, I've now written a book from cover to cover. Was it hard to get the words out? Like, did no. it bring back any memories that you just no, didn't want? No, it was so therapeutic. Yeah. It was beautiful, to yeah. be honest. Um, the point I was going to make is that I struggled to write a thousand-word essay at school, and I've just written a 60,000-word book. Wow. You know, so... Um, was it because of the interest in the actual topics? I think the, the topic, and, yeah. and you live it. No one wants to write about algorithms at school. Or, or any sort of book yeah. that you're not interested in when you're talking about, you know, a novel that you read at school. But this was my life and this was everything that I'd done. And I'd always held, I never held regrets, right? Because I, I, a friend of mine said to me once, you know, whenever you're in those times of regret, you think about it, people have regrets every day of the week. Whenever you're in those times of regret or you look back at the times that you think you may regret, if you think to the exact time you make that decision that you now regret, at the time it was the exact decision you wanted to make. Yeah. Like you were tossing the coin and you know, I, I went and played footy in France, which we'll, we'll get to. I played a bit of footy in France where I, where I left and went come up. Mm. Um, and people said to me, do you regret doing that? And I, I look back and I go, you know what, I had every everything going for me while I was there. But you put me back in that, that position and it was the, the exact decision I wanted to make I made. So everything that I wanted to do, I come home. I wasn't I wasn't forced to come home. Yeah. I, I, I chose to come home. But it's like we talked about before with perfect timing and even time. Like for me, time is the, the biggest commodity we've all got. Think about... The biggest test. For yourself, five years ago, what you, what you were doing and where you were and how much you've put on the board between then and now. You're speaking... You know, you've had four, five children. Five, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just one of those things that do achievement. Sometimes we look at, we get down on ourselves because we didn't achieve something in a week, but when we look yeah. back on it over a year, over a five-year period, it's... You know, in all honesty, I thought forever that I was going to be a rugby league player. I yeah. thought I was going to be a footballer. I, I had I had a fair bit of uh, ability growing up. You know, I was I signed my first contract at 13. You're an Australian schoolboy. I played Australian schoolboys. Yeah. I, I lived with Arthur Beetson. Um, I was playing... First grade in the bush at 14, I, I went all right. You know, like I'm not saying this to be a big note, but um, as painting a bit of a picture, I thought my life was going to be rugby league. Yeah. And I could speak all right, so I was good, you know, and, and I liked being in front of the camera, so I thought oh, then I'd go into 
you know, commentary or something like that. These are all the, the what I thought that I'd do in my life. My life's taken so many different twists and turns that I couldn't be further away from that. Yeah. Joe, and, when you were a kid, what was your work ethic like and things like that? Because obviously you were very natural, talented. You come from yeah, a pedigree cool. with your father who played in the Winfield Cup and he, he was a bush legend. It was poor, yeah. I'll be honest. It was poor um, because, you know, there, there was... There were schoolboys teams that I got picked for. I got picked for a New South Wales Catholic schoolboys team, the yeah. New South Wales team, on a letter that I was injured, wow. and I wrote the letter and said because I played, I played the year before. So you know, my parents wrote the letter backed up by the school saying that you know he's got a broken thumb, he can't play in the trials. Please consider him to be picked. Yeah, I'm still one of the first being picked. You know, there was guys there who played out of their skin for that carnival. They never got picked, and, and I got picked. Mate, I was gifted a hell of a lot of things growing up, yeah, because of natural abilities. I, and and I thought that it was all going to come on the back of that. Was there a heap of pressure on you so early to actually do something? I don't think there was a lot of pressure from within. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that there was pressure. There certainly wasn't from my parents, or certainly wasn't from anyone else. They knew that I could produce, and I knew that when I wanted to, I could produce. I, if I needed something to do in the field, I'd do it. Yeah, because your mum was more education. She wanted yeah. you to have the best education you yeah, could get. Like we, had, we had six clubs coming to sign us. Yeah. Coming to sign me at 13. And every club that comes through the door, they'd say, you know, we've got this and we've got that. And, and you know, we can, do, we, can, we can give him this much money and we can do this with it. And, and you get these shoes and, and this, you know. And my mum said, I don't care what you give him that way. The person or the club who gives my son the best education is going to get him. Yeah. Mum, thankfully, that's the best thing that's ever happened to me today. The best thing that's ever happened. Because mum recognised and she identified to break the cycle that mum and dad never finished school. There's, you know, you're looking now, still to this day, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are behind in numeracy and literacy schools. Yeah. Are you the eldest child? Uh, I've got an older brother yep. uh, who who dropped out of school to get an apprenticeship, um, and myself, I was put through Catholic school education, private school education. You went to Marcellin, didn't you? I went to Marcellin, yep. and uh, well, well, St Michael's through in Wagga, yep. St Michael's through to Year Ten, Trinity High in, in Wagga, and that was all out of not a cent out of my parents' pocket. And there's no way that my parents would have been able. It's expensive schools, private schools. Yeah, they're they're expensive schools. I've got kids now in high school. So I know it's not. Yeah, and and I was just so lucky that that my mum saw that, you know. And what was the feeling like when you graduated year twelve in your family? Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty good. Yeah, the intention, you know. Like, but again, like you look back and you go, you just think that that's what you got to do. I played NRL because that's what I thought that I was going to do. You know, there, there's nothing that I've ever. I, I'll be honest, and this might sound a little bit cocky but I, I've been lucky that if there's anything I want to do in my life I've done it and so when I became an NRL player well mm. that was what I was always going to do when I became a professional boxer that's what I'm going to do I like I, I don't sit and make goals for years and years and years to get to it so is it an ability just to keep focus when you really want something yeah, I've got to do it. Like, like I, I said, I'm going to write a book. Yeah, 
I wrote 35,000 words in a month. And a lot of that's got to do with my bipolar as well. So I get fixated on something, and when I'm in these manic episodes, I just go and go and go and go. Yeah. Um, so I'm, ex- I'm extremely creative in things that I, I do as well. What age did you get diagnosed with bipolar? Just when I finished playing the NRL. Wow. So what, you were mid-20s? Yeah, about 26, 27. Yeah. Did so, you accept it straight away, or were you in denial at all? No, in denial, because I, and, and then I didn't medicate myself. Yeah. That's what then put me down the track of... You know, my suicide attempt later in my life. Yeah. Um, what were your symptoms at the time? A huge mania. Like, I, I'd go and I, I'd just... I'd, I'm a spender. Yeah. I don't have money, I spend it. Um, in, in manic episodes, I've started gyms, I've started clothing companies, all with no experience. Like, I wrote... It, I wrote... I drafted an email to Ellen DeGeneres one day. Did you? Telling her I had the answer to the world's anxiety problems these are obviously later in my life I've mm. been educated around these any email backs I didn't send it I didn't send it I'm, I'm lucky that the people who I was working with at the time they gave me they gave me a, a 24 hour rule when I'm in these manic episodes where I think things are amazing grandiose ideas sit on it for 24 hours so now I've got the ability um to sit on things for, for 24 hours although I want to do it not everything and say oh, this is going to be an amazing idea and yeah i got to sit on it a little bit I, I just but your insights must be just going off right huge. that 24 hours must be the most anxious time of your huge. life yeah huge but my head flies a million miles an hour as it, as it is yep I, and and I, and I speak about this regularly you know I um, when I sign that two, I say two 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 Really important things happened to me at the age of 13. Um, I signed that NRL contract. Yep. And I received my first major concussion. That sent me completely unconscious and lost my memory for a few days. And and How did it happen, Joe? On the field? Clash. Yeah. Just a head clash on the field. One of those things. Um, and at the time, was it one of those things they didn't really think much of it? Just you went home? Things. Yeah. Mum wouldn't let me play the rest of the day. Yep. So it was a junior carnival. Mum wouldn't let me play the rest of the day. You'll be right. Just just monitor him during the week. Don't let him sleep that afternoon. All the all the, the natural things. Just normal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've seen it a million times in footy. But um, it was that week I, I remember my first suicidal ideation. Voices in my head that told me that I wasn't good enough, that I was, that questioned absolutely everything that I did and told me I should kill myself. Yeah. What would you do? Would you panic straight away or? Yeah. Of course you do. You think, what the hell is these thoughts? Yeah. And, and progressively over my life, they've gotten a hell of a lot worse to the point where, you know, it was, it was, I would lock myself up in the room, in the house for days. To seclude yourself. Yeah, I remember when I went through my marriage breakdown, I didn't leave my room for about 10 days, my room. I mean, um, actually, I, the way I left my room was to go to, the, go to the front door when I got takeaway. When I got, uh, or like when I got, what do you call it, like delivery Delivery food, yeah. So I'd go and answer the door, boom, go back. I ate my dinner on my ironing board in my, in my bedroom. Wow. It was some dark days, man dark days and this is all on the back of you know you walk outside and you'll, you'll see someone or someone want to talk to you about 
about when you're applying for the Rabbitohs or someone wants to take your photo. And they're all excited. They're all excited. But yeah. Everything within yourself is telling you that you're worthless. Everything that's in your brain and your thought patterns telling you that you're a worthless piece of shit mm-hmm. and that you don't deserve to be here anymore and that this truck that's coming up the road right now, jump out in front of it. Like these are these literal voices are going in my head every day and thought patterns that, that are so overpowering that you move you move to walk towards the road and you go, whoa, whoa, hang on, what are you doing here? Recently I was in America and I was on a snowmobile. Yeah. And the, I was flying around these snowmobiles and you know, we're racing around, being ready. And the voice came into my head and said, swerving to that tree no one will ever know that it wasn't an accident. And it could be passed off as that. Oh, he was, they were just flying around and Absolutely. lost control yeah. and had an accident. But here's these voices telling me to do it on purpose. Driving down the road, down the highway, and I had um, my fiance Courtney and, and our little one in the car. This is before the new baby was born. Mm-hmm. And put yourself in Courtney's shoes here, right? Driving down the highway... A voice tells me to swerve into an oncoming truck. If I don't voice it, as in get it out of my head, it stays there and spirals and builds and builds and builds. Yep. So I have to I have to verbal it. Caught I just had voices to tell me to swerve into that truck. Put yourself in her shoes. Oh. Absolutely. How long have you guys been together? Ah, about six years. How hard was it the first time that you actually had to tell her about everything? Um, she's a pretty cruisy, pretty cruisy girl. Yeah. She gets worried. She gets worried, but um, she doesn't give away a lot. She gets worried, worried for me, and she's the first person to tell me and to identify when I'm struggling. Tell me to go to the hospital. Or tell me to do this. Or tell me to do that. Um, Asking me when I have my meds and all that. Yeah. Um, she's the first one to say it. But she doesn't... You know, she like I said, she's pretty... She's different. She's just cruisy and she doesn't make a fuss over it. Joe, you need to have your meds, you know that. Yeah, right. So if, I, if I've got someone telling me, make sure you have your meds, you've got to do this because you've got to do that and this is how you feel, then I'm going to just react to it, to that. Because let's not forget that when we're in these depressive moments, we've got everything telling us that we're worthless and that we don't deserve to be here and that everyone's against us anyway. So as soon as somebody comes at me physically and starts telling me to do something, I'm going to pull out the barriers and I'm going to start fighting back. Yeah. So that's um, that's why it's so critical and so important for people to be so passive when people struggle in in these tough times. Yeah. What was the first step for you in terms of making a difference? Because obviously it affected you so, so much. And um, You know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up mm. in my family. As I mentioned with, you know, the schooling and so forth, um, there were some nights where we struggled to put food on the table. Yeah. But we always got by, you know, and I'm extremely thankful for that because it, it gives me a gratitude now. Um but it taught me it taught me so much about how to deal with me and what I went through. And I didn't speak about it to anyone. Mm. I didn't speak about this until 2014. Wow. To anyone. 
uh, even to a point my suicide attempt in 2012, I didn't speak to anyone outside my direct family about this. Has speaking been a huge contributor to helping you release it? Oh, mate, it's medicine. Yeah. It's medicine. People say, do you still go to your psychologist appointments? And I say, what happens when you sit down in a psychologist room? You sit there and you tell your story. I'm lucky I get to tell my story in front of hundreds of people every day. Yeah, and you found your passion doing it. Like I said, I thought I was going to be a rugby league player. I stopped doing that. thought I was going to be a boxer. stopped doing that. This is my purpose. When did the first speaking gig actually come up? In 2014. Yeah. um, I I had a lady who came came to me um, to the gym. I was running a gym back in Wagon, right? And she said, Joe, you're always, you're always doing things for other people. You're always out there um, giving yourself to others. I was training her sons at the time. And, you know, an indication, I'd, I'd work at the gym from, from six till nine, and then I'd go to school, as in I worked at a school as well. Mm. So six till nine, then at the school from nine till three, yep. and then back to the gym from four till, say, seven thirty-eight. So I was doing all this 12 to 14 hour days every day. She said, you're always doing stuff for other people. Why? I said, you don't know my story. I'm not just a boxer, a rugby league player. Helping people helps me. She says, what do you mean helps you? Helps you do what? And that's what I started talking about. I said, I've struggled. I had a suicide attempt in 2012 and I've struggled with depression my entire life. It took me a good while of talking about my depression, so 12 months of talking about depression, until I started to talk about my suicidal ideation. Yeah. Because I'm not going to come out and lay, all, lay it all on the table when I've got zero confidence. I thought I'd scare everyone away. That's uh, one of the unfortunate things about these illnesses, that it tricks us. Tricks us into believing things that, that we think may happen but never do happen, you know, with, in regards to talking. You know, I tell people every day of the week, when you're in these moments, you have to talk about it. Yeah. Because talking helps you. Not only is it going to keep you alive by getting people to give you help, but it helps you. It's therapeutic for you. It helps you to talk. What's the first thing I do when I'm in the grips of suicide or in the grips of depression? I don't speak. I don't speak. I seclude myself. I pull yeah. myself away from everyone. I'm, I'm a hypocrite because I'm telling people that I've got to talk. Sometimes we're the best at giving advice and not oh, taking it ourselves. So I, I find that myself. 100%. Yeah. 100%. You know, I, I, I tell so many people, and I don't listen to this again, um, I tell so many people, you're trying to make a decision on something, right? Or you're feeling a certain way. What would be the advice you give your best friend or your brother or your sister who are going through the exact same situation? You would tell them to do this. Start telling yourself to do that. You know, it was, uh, and I'm so thankful for this conversation, right? Um, I was in a really, really tough time, and it was my Mm -hmm. ex-partner. It was my ex-partner's, my ex-partner's boyfriend, actually. Um, And everyone was ringing me because I was off the grid, you know? I I wasn't answering calls. I wasn't talking. um, I I was missing for a few hours, and everyone was starting to panic, and they were all ringing each other, um... You know, because keep up here, I've got five kids, but I've got three separate yep. mothers. So all the mothers are concerned for their kids' father, right? So they're all ringing, ringing each other. Up, yeah. and, Where is he? Is everything all right? Yeah. And it was it was, um, it was was my ex's partner. 
he texted me and he said, Joe, don't you think you're a hypocrite? And I was like, what is this bloke talking about? Who's the hell trying to tell me to be a hypocrite? And I wrote back, what do you mean? And he said, you tell everyone to talk when they're in tough situations yet you're not talking now. And I rang him and I thanked him. I said, you're exactly right. I've got to talk. And then that, that broke me out of that that tough situation right then. Wow. So, um, mate, we're, we get so clouded in these tough times. Like I said, since the age of 13, I've had voices in my head telling me that I'm no good, that I don't, I don't deserve to be here anymore. Mm. Now... I played 50 games in the NRL. I probably should have played 200. My, the inconsistencies in my rugby league were so much to do with what was going on in my head. Because you look at my behaviours, I wasn't consistent on the rugby league field. Why? Because my off-field antics were no good. Mm. I, was, I, was, I was drinking. I was taking drugs. I was doing all sorts of bad stuff, which was affecting my physical behaviours. You strip that back... Why am I turning to the alcohol and drugs? The only thing that could quiet down the noise inside my head was the alcohol and drugs. Yeah. And then you quit. You've been, what, sober for about 11, 12 years, yeah? Yeah, it's 12 years, um, you know, thankfully in, in December. Yeah. You know what? It was, it was a conversation with a friend of mine who I used to go out and get on whatever else with uh, on the party scene with him. And uh, I said, where have you been, mate? I haven't seen you for a while. I haven't seen you for a couple of years. And he said, I've straightened my life out. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I don't drink anymore. I said, shut up. He goes, mate, I'm, I'm serious. I, I believe I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, and this is what it's doing in my life. And he said to me, what is your, what is your um, opinion of an alcoholic or a drug addict? Mm. I said, someone who doesn't turn up to work or someone who drinks down the park or someone has, you know, the old silver bag, um, you know, the goon bag, cask, yeah. yeah, cask, cask goon. Um, that's an alcoholic, and he said, "No, that's not right." He said, "An alcoholic is someone who, when they put alcohol into their system, it trips a chemical into their brain, and make them want more." Um, and he said, "And you can drink once a month, or you can drink every single day. That chemical can still be enabled uh, once once you have that alcohol in your system, uh, and just." It was that weekend, you go, I said, you know what? Like after a few more conversations, um, I said, I'm going to get off the drink when I get back to Sydney. He said, why don't you get off it now? I said, no, I can't. <laughs> I was playing a big touch footy carnival, so I, I... You're not going to miss out. I couldn't. No. I couldn't. And that was a, a, lot of, a big fear of mine for so long was what am I going to miss out on? The fear of missing out, mate. Now I don't care. Yeah. Now I don't care. It's the same people telling the same jokes, telling the same stories on the bar stools, you know. Um, I I very rarely walk into a pub, um, but I know that it's still there. Those genes are in me, and and what a lot of the work I do around uh, addictions and mental illness, yeah. and a lot of the work in America is that addictions are seen as a mental illness treated the same as a mental illness and it is treated as if uh, it is hereditary so genetically passed down so was it hereditary in your family my dad's been 12 years service as well my grandfather pretty much drank himself to death yeah undiagnosed 
that was my grandfather as well. My parents are from Mauritius. Yeah. And dad lost both parents before he was 16 years old. His dad drank himself to death. He was 42, I remember, because he's got six brothers. Yeah. And every time, because he died at 42, every time they were shitting themselves, every time they hit 42. Yeah. And they're all lucky that they live past that age, but yeah. And it's... It's... Uh, and, and it's widely been spoken about now that that it's uh, genetically passed down. Mm. Not necessarily or 100% guaranteed every time, um, but there's a chance it is, just like you've got brown hair and brown eyes. Yeah. There's a chance. If well, I've it just gets written in the DNA, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly. Exactly what it is. It's in the DNA. So um, what do I do now with my kids? My boy's nearly 13. I know what I was doing at 13. Mm. All right? Um, so I don't wrap him up in cotton wool I educate him I educate the, the do's and don'ts around you know I know that it, you know he's I'm not I'm not stupid yeah how, how much does he know about your story enough yeah at this stage he knows that I travel around and I speak about suicide prevention he's my eldest what's his name Brody Brody Brody's the eldest um, and you know I, I've had that conversation with him because I know that it's genetically handed down and that it may miss him in genetics, but it also might hit him. Mm. So I don't talk to him about suicide and that I try to take my life. I talk to him about I didn't think that there was another, that there was, that there was an answer to live on anymore. I didn't think that people loved me. Um, the importance was... I'm lucky enough to survive and the more important thing now is when I'm not feeling well I should talk about it when you're not feeling well you should talk about it and we should we should encourage our friends and families to talk when they're you know I speak to kids and I speak to kids as young as year three and four yeah in schools because the youngest suicide is you know seven year old seven year old in Australia I think it's four in the United States that's a young man so um, I talk I talk to my kids about about the importance of feelings and how things make you feel and and the words you use to other people what it can, how it can affect them absolutely things like that, you know words got the power to do one of two things either pick you up or put you down it's that simple when you're on stage is that your safe zone your clarity where you're not really thinking any bad thoughts at all how's that this is where this is where um, this is where boxing and, and rugby league was so good for me, mm. is that... Have you heard of the book by Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now? Yeah. It teaches you how to live in the present, right? And when we're in the present, we are most safest. So when I was on the rugby league field, I wasn't thinking about nothing but rugby league. Yeah. I was thinking about that bloke running at me. I was thinking about what play I'm going to make. I was in the present, in a boxing ring, even more so. Because if I look over there or think about something else, I'm not there. Simple, right? So I, I, I always wanted to know. I always thought, why is it that I feel so good when I'm on the footy field or in the boxing ring? Why? It's because I'm present. Because the world's problems now with things are with with mental illness around anxiety and depressions because we're living in our head too much. Living in the past, thinking about the past causes depression. If I, if I uh, hadn't have done that, then I wouldn't be yeah, feeling the way I am now. Exactly, yeah. If that hadn't have happened to me, then this wouldn't be how I am right now. Yeah. The opposite of that with anxiety is living in the future. 
what if this happens? What if that happens? If I go in here and I do this to me, um, then I'm going to feel like this. And then what if that happens? Then then this is going to make me... It's all about the what ifs. So anxiety and depression are two opposites of the scale. One's thinking about the past and one's thinking about the future. But the one commonality is it's all to do with thinking. It's all your thoughts. Now, why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people never had mental illness problems pre-colonisation, pre-1788, there was no suicides, no, no mental illness problems, yeah. is because they thought with their gut. You know, we talk about the gut instinct. Yeah. They think through their stomach. They don't think with their head. Why there was no anxiety is because they did what they had to do when they needed to do it. So there was no alarm clocks, there was no... The biggest contributor to anxiety today is the clock. You have to be here. You have to be here at a certain time, you have to get this done by a certain deadline. You know, in the old days, you wake up when you weren't tired. Yeah. You ate when you were hungry. You got water when you needed water. You went to bed when you you were tired. You did what you wanted to do when? You did what you had to do. Yeah. Not necessarily what you wanted to do, because there's wants and there's needs. There's things that you need in your life and there's things that you want in your life. That's where we have problems as well. Everybody wants something bigger and something better. Think about it. Everybody wants a million dollars in their bank. Everybody wants a bigger bigger house. Everyone wants a faster car. Do you need a faster car? No, you don't. You only need one that goes 60. Yeah. Wants and needs are so very different. Today's problems a lot are to do with social media and 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 the expectations put on us by a wider society that always wants us to be something else. Just be you. We have to always, we think we we have to prove to other people, oh, don't we? It's so, it's so prevalent in, in so many young people. I thought that I had to do this because this is what this told me to do. Yeah. It's not. It's just a system. Well, Joe, I know that you've got a two smash out to your next event, but this is only part A because I'm only just warming up, my brother. So let's get you back next time you're in Sydney. Most definitely. We'll get you back in for part two. Most definitely. Because I really enjoy the conversation. You know, I'm lucky that, um, and, and, and why I do what I do is because I hurt still every day. I still have these suicidal ideations mm. every day, right? But I go about different things, and, and, and I moved away from, um, you know, how I said, uh, my parents couldn't afford doctors and so forth. So I started to learn to live with things like being grateful, gratitude, gratitude in my life, yeah. right? Um, having love in my life, not only for everyone else but myself. Um, love, having humility in everything I do. I lost that. I lost that when I was playing footy, I'll be honest. Yeah. Empathy. Yeah, having empathy for other people. Everybody acts the way they do for a reason. I love going and speaking in prisons. Because 99% of the prison system are people who are a victim of someone else's pain. Hurt people, hurt people. I speak, and I could speak all day about this, right? Is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are so hurt in today's society because of what happened 230 years ago. Yeah. Right? We are still hugely uh, hurting from that. But again, back to my theory of hurt people, hurt people. When Captain Cook and his men got here, they were also running from something else. They're hurt. Yeah. What the Romans did to them. So it's like an onboard effect. So it's an onboard effect. 
that's fair. Yeah. It's a, it's a vicious spiral of, you know, our people are now hurting. So there's so many of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people caught in the system of, we are 20 times incarcerated. We, uh, we die by suicide six times more than the non-Indigenous people. Um, you know, and that's all coming from a place of hurt and pain. Every single problem with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in today's society, and I'll get some people to object, object to this, and I don't care because I'll stand by it, is all learnt behaviour from, not, from non-Indigenous people. We never had alcohol. That's true. We never had domestic violence. We never had diabetes. All these problems are introduced, wasn't it? All introduced things into our communities. And yet we look and talk down and see down on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are caught in a system of pain. Again, that pain comes from someone else's hurt and someone else's trauma. So the pain afflicted on us by non-Indigenous people 230 years ago, they had pain afflicted on them previous to that. So, you know, pain doesn't heal pain. You know, only love does that. Yeah, exactly right. So you've got to love people into, into healing. But I could speak all day on this. <laughs> that's going to be part two, man. Like, that's where we're going to pick it up from next episode because I'd love to get you back in. I speak in. so much in the book. I speak so much in the book about, you know, I'll... I, I received wide criticism. Um, I, I got the, uh, the, the Wagga uh, Australia Day Citizen of the Year. Mm. Um, 2015? Yeah, uh, 16 or 16. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. My memory, That's I can't remember. It's a big achievement, man. Yeah, it was well, up there with one of my best. I mm. won't lie. Um, and again, it was, it was about the work that I do for suicide prevention all throughout the year. I didn't stand up during the national anthem, which I haven't done for the last 10 years. Yeah. And... The local councillor got up, uh, come out in the press, and he said, I should deserve, I, I don't deserve the award, I should give it back. Again, it wasn't, it was very hard for me to even turn up on that night when I didn't know that I won the award, but even turn up on the night because of the, the, the day that surrounds Australia Day. Man, our people are slaughtered on January 26th, yeah. were slaughtered and, and raped and bashed and killed on January 26th. Now we have a national holiday celebrating that day. It just doesn't make sense. I I actually had an argument with some of my friends because they weren't willing to move the date. And I said, well, to make all Australians feel like it's a whole on one particular day, I think we can lose the 26th of January. I don't think we've got a particular anything that we need the 26th of January. Well, people don't realise that that Australia Day... See, I'm, I'm pretty smart for a little darky. Mm. Australia Day has been moved three times from January 26th. Yeah. It's only recently been set as January 26th in something like the last 15 years. So in a, in a country steeped with tradition, what's 15 years? Exactly. And given what happened on. on that day, for me, it's not much of an effort for everyone to Mate, move that day. The thing is... It's not that we want to upset everyone else's day for Australia Day. We want to celebrate it. You want to be part. That's we the thing. We want to be part. Yes. Of that. That's, that was my argument, that they feel that Aboriginal people feel they can't celebrate that day because of everything that happened. And so be it, because what happened, happened. Yeah. And it isn't a big thing for us to change. We can change it from February the 2nd. Yeah. It, there's no, nothing, there is meaning to you guys that, on that day 
something atrocious happened. Here's and one for you. Uh, January 1, 1901. That's when Australia became Australia. Before that, it was Van Diemen's Land. So it's it's only, you know, over... Yeah, it's not just... Old. That's very young compared to a lot of other places. Compared to 65,000 years of traditions without people. Yeah. That's a blink of an eye. 100 years. That's nothing. So, um, you know, there's... In the book, I speak a lot about how how people can learn from our old traditions mm. um, and how healing um, culture is. Yeah. So the book's going to be out January, January 2018. Next year, 2018. I've seen, i a couple of notes. HarperCollins is going to... HarperCollins is, is publishing it through ABC Books, yep. um, which is, you know, I'm, I'm hugely thankful for. And You can pre-order now too. Yeah, you can pre-order now online, which is which has been really, really good. And and all these pre-orders are, can be... Can be found on my on my Twitter, yep. um, which is Joe Williams underscore TEW, which is the enemy within. Yep, I've got your your Facebook, the enemy within Joe Williams, and your website if they want to get in touch. Yeah, website nice JoeWilliams.com.au. Great little blog you've you know, got happening as, a, as well. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I'm a writer, so it started off with writing lengthy Facebook statuses to, to into blogs um, to into a uh, a 21 chapter book. Um, which I'm hugely excited about. Um, Everybody gets because an it's not about, you know, when I, I, I read autobiographies, right, and and when I read some other autobiographies, I went, I want mine to be different. Yeah. I want, my, mine's not about the glitz and the glamour and what I did to be like me. I want some kids out there to learn from what I did to be better than me. But it's the vulnerable side that makes it, of course it is. People appreciate what you went through. Mate, it's, uh, and it's truth-telling. It's hard-hitting. I speak about um, the copious amounts of recreational drugs I took during mm. the NRL. Um, I talked about getting sober and clean. I talk about marriage breakdowns. I talk about living with suicidal ideations. I talk about the day of my suicide attempt. Everything that happened to me that day, the smell that was in the air, because those days are like yesterday. That's something I live through every single day. Wow, man. Thanks for being so open and honest today, my man. And I can't wait for the book to come out because it just seems like such an intriguing thing. Like, I love when vulnerability comes on the table because I think it's such a a great learning experience. So many people say to me, Joe, you know, you are so brave in doing what you do. No, I'm not brave. It's just right. It's just the right thing to do. You know, for a lot of the things that I speak up about with the injustices with, with Aboriginal people and equality for all people... It's not brave, it's just right. By you speaking up, it might affect one person. By saving one person, you've done your job, man. We need all people to do what's right, not follow the crowd. Thanks for having me, brother. Nah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the time in Sydney, man. Can't wait to have you back. Look forward to it. All right, man. Let's do it again. For sure. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode with Joe Williams. I really... Really enjoyed bringing that one to you. I'm pretty sure we're going to have a part two. Unfortunately, on the day, Joe had to scoot over to another speaking another speaking gig. He's well in demand these days, so we only just was pretty much warming up. So we got a good 40 minutes in the way, Joe. I think next time, like I think me and Joe could talk for a number of hours. We seem to connect on a great level. We've got a number of interests together as well so it was just great to actually connect and just find someone else just meet someone else that you know had similar point of views and could chat about you know different 
things with in regards to you know mindset and just getting motivated and all the different things that Joe talks about. I'm really, really interested, and I'd love to have him back on. Like I said, please connect with Joe, www.joewilliams.com.au. Facebook is at The Enemy Within, Joe Williams. Twitter and Instagram, Joe Williams underscore two. Just remember, pick up his book. It's going to be out October, sorry, October. It's going to be out January 2018. It's going to be through HarperCollins. I'll have the link in the show notes if you want to do a pre-order on the book. I think you definitely have to. Joe is a world of knowledge. I think it's coming from a first-hand point of view as well. He's been there and he's experienced it. So that's what I really love about Joe Williams. Guys, bumper episode coming up in the next show as well. We've got Wayne Gardner and also cricketer Brad Hull coming on the show. We should have a couple of A-League players also featuring. Next week, we've got a couple of Socceroos lined up. The Maloney boys, if you're into your boxing, Jason and Andrew Maloney, they'll be on the show just finishing trying to finalize the interview with Jeff Horn as well. So if you're interested in, in your fighting your champions, please check it out. But until next time, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.